shown that a black man died after being shot 46 times by police following a traffic stop. And that's all the news from RTHK. There are more stored value facilities in this year's consumption voucher scheme. Re-register to change your choice or wait to receive the remaining $5,000 if you're eligible. Register if you're a newly eligible permanent resident or new arrival aged 18 or above. Eligible non-permanent residents are also included. Register online or through service centers from June 23rd to July 23rd. And welcome to The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. Hope you are having a wonderful start to your weekend. Remember to stay hydrated, as it will get really hot in the next couple of months. Did you have breakfast yet? How about some dim sum? Some of my favorites are definitely rolled rice rolls or chong fun. The texture is always so chewy and yet so smooth. What's yours? Though dim sum might be the comfort food for the average Hong Konger, you might want to watch your sodium levels. In a recent study conducted by the Center for Food Safety of the Food Environmental Hygiene Department, they found that sodium levels for certain types of dim sums, such as shrimp siu mai, spring rolls with shrimp, and steamed minced beef balls were relatively higher. Though we do need to intake sodium in our everyday diets, researchers have said that excessive sodium intake may increase the risk of developing high blood pressure. Let's hear from Dr. Samuel Young, a consultant of community medicine and risk assessment and communications of the Center for Food Safety, where he told Janice Wong and Jenny Lam, what are some of the healthier dim sum dishes and how we can manage our sodium levels when enjoying dim sum? Oh, uh, we, in, in our study, the uh, plain uh, rice rolls, the, uh, the plain rice rolls have Jing Chang Fan is, uh, have the lowest level. So... Uh, but this type of Jing Chang Fan, we, we only tested for the Chang Fan without testing the, uh, without uh, accounting for the source. Yeah, so 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 that's the thing about the sources, Doctor Young, isn't right, it? Right. When you when you have the Chang Fan, you, you you add your sesame, your soy sauce, whatever. What is the sodium content in those condiments? Yes, it is. They're very. Yes, you, you have raised a very important point. Uh, we also look at the these sodium content in and sauces. Uh, we look at uh, four types of uh, sauces, the soy sauce, the sweet sauce, uh, the uh, Worcestershire sauce, and the sesame sauce. Uh, the soy sauce has the highest level, uh, which amounts to uh, 2,600 milligrams per 100 grams. Uh, but surprisingly, a, a sweet sauce uh, ranked second is around uh, 2,400. So it is more or less the, uh, similar to soy sauce. So uh, consumers should be aware of that. The, uh, ironically, sweet sauce, it should be taste sweet, but it has a high uh, sodium content. Uh, talking about sauce, we, our, our findings also find that uh, when, we add the, when we add the sauce to the dim sum, it mm -hmm. can increase the amount of sodium significantly. Now, for example, uh, if we add half of the uh, soy sauce, uh, provided by the restaurants, it would actually double uh, the amount of sodium intake. So the half of the soy sauce amounts to uh, one uh, tablespoon, which is 15 mil 
Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot. So it actually doubles the amount uh, of uh, sodium when we are taking having uh, the uh, so, so what recommendations do you have for people who actually like them some? What's the best way to consume it without the sauces? No, the sauces, some type of dim sum may actually have, uh, have to taste with the sauce. But uh, consumers have to pay attention to the sodium content of dim sums and they have to choose carefully uh, when, when they are ordering. So uh, also when um, having the dim sum which uh, serve with sauce, they can request the restaurants to uh, serve the sauce separate from the dim sum. So before actually having a taste, uh, before actually having add the, add the uh, sauce to the dim sum, they can taste the dim sum first to see whether they actually need the sauce. And if they really want to add the sauce, they want to dip the dim sum sparingly to the sauce first. Yeah, so, so we know that in Hong Kong, especially with the elderly population, g- gathering for a dim sum lunch is kind of a daily event, right? right? What impact does that have on their health? <clears throat> um, because uh, uh, dim sum is, is uh, we have noted dim sum is not the first uh, major uh, con- sodium contributor, it ranked about uh, the, f- uh, the fourth and the fifth uh, major contributors of, our, uh, dim- of sodium in our diet. Uh, sauce and condiments rank the first. So people can actually enjoy uh, having dim sum healthily, but they need to know uh, that they have to, what kind of dim sum to choose and how to uh, enjoy the dim sum healthily. For example, uh, not adding the sauce. Uh, at the first instance, they have to taste it first, uh, and then it adds sparingly. Yeah. So my question was, uh, if you eat too much dim sum with too much sauce, uh, high blood pressure for one thing. But are there other health consequences that you can think? Well, the, ma- the major uh, concern is the uh, uh, is high blood pressure, but uh, it is not only for people who have hypertension. It's for people who seemingly are looks healthy, because. Uh, when you're having too much sodium uh, today, you may develop hyperpressure uh, sometimes later. So it's actually uh, for the whole population to reduce the sodium uh, intake. For, uh, because we know that most of the people in Hong Kong, the vast majority of Hong Kong people in Hong Kong, are having a sodium level intake above the WHO recommendation uh, level. Now you said uh, we should uh, choose carefully when it comes to dim sum. Um, what about uh, just uh, drinking more tea? Would, would that help dilute the salt, uh, the, the sodium intake? Uh, well, the, the, the fact that it, it, it doesn't. Uh, once we have uh, intake, we've taken the sodium, the sodium will be there. And even if you drink a lot of tea or water, uh, although you diluted the, 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 the sodium in the stomach, but the total amount will be remain the same, so the effect is similar. Um, well, so sodium is one thing. Have you considered looking at other aspects of dim sum, or in fact, restaurant food in general? What about fat? What about sugar? Uh, in we, we our current study mainly focus on the um, uh, focus on the uh, sodium level in dim sums. But people will, uh, if choosing the dim sum, they will choose. Uh, say less with less salt, uh, with less sugar. Of course, they will be beneficial to the health. 
Um, apart from that, we, apart from providing advice to the consumers, we will work with the trade. Uh, we'll advise the trade to reformulate the um, the dim sums because uh, most of the salt, most of the salt, the sodium in the dim sums are from the uh, condiments that's added to the dim sum uh, during preparations. Uh, although the ingredient itself, the meat, the shrimps or the chickens themselves may have some some level of sodium, but majority are mm-hmm. the added salt and the condiments. So we will later work with the food uh, trade and to work on that. That was Dr. Samuel Young, consultant of community medicine and risk assessment and the communications of the Center for Food Safety on Wednesday's Back Chat. Have you ever played around with a Rubik's Cube before? I could just really never wrap my head around it. It's just so hard to revert it after twisting all the sides. Just a quick fun fact for you. The cube was actually invented by Hungarian architecture professor Erna Rubik in 1974, and it has since been one of the most beloved toys in modern day history. If you would actually want to learn how to solve the cube, up next, Dean Zambelikos, the co-founder of Kate Global, tells us more about some strategies when solving a Rubik's Cube, and also a very exciting upcoming world record Rubik's blind solving event. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a long time connection now. Um, I actually signed the license for the Rubik's Cube in Southeast Asia back in 2006, before it became popular once again. So very, very small company. I'd only been in Asia a few years. There was a lack of supply and uh, there wasn't a ton of demand. At least it was pent up, but not, not, not proven. And so I managed to get the license and acquire it at a pretty low cost. Um, and so, uh, and so fast. So you brought the Rubik's cube to Hong Kong, basically the original game. That's correct. So, so it was, it was actually for, for all of Southeast Asia. And, um, we had a, a very good partnership with Toys R Us at the time. And, and that's, that's really where we were driving the majority of our business. Uh, and as soon as we brought it in, it just flew immediately. I mean, uh, you know, the test was mainly in Hong Kong, like moth to a flame. I mean, Hong Kongers just, just gravitated towards it. Um, and, and then, well, it's, it's continued. So 16 years later, we're still here. Yeah. Uh, we now service more and more of uh, retail channels across, uh, across the region. Uh, and and uh, Rubik's, I would say, is stronger than ever. What's the appeal with the Rubik's Cube? You know, there's something quite uh, magical about it. You see it. Uh, you, you, you just want to pick it up and then start shifting. I mean, yeah, what is the appeal, do you think? Yes. I mean, okay, there's humans are visual creatures, Right, Pri- primarily, um, and and so it's not just about that. But there's certainly a very very nice visual connection when you see this this six colored cube, and it's scrambled, and then all of a sudden somebody out el- somebody's able to make it look whole. Yes. Oh, what an amazing transformation! Uh, and then of course the sound that goes along with it. It's like you know. It's almost like an analog version of, of, of haptics that happen in your smartphone. You know, the, 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 the sound it makes and, and the visuals that go along with it, and even the feel in your hands, 
it just it just it just has that 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 I don't know what it is, but there's something there that that that's just been enduring, and now we're coming up on a 50 year anniversary. So this is pretty much a, a, let's just say that's a global phenomenon. Yeah. Of course, you know, it, it's not just a toy. It, it actually cultivates certain skills, um, you know, like patience. There are certain qualities that come along uh, with playing with a simple toy like the Rubik's Cube. Well, what sorts of skills do you think it sort of cultivates in, in people? Okay. Um, actually, there's so many different skills that it does. So to go down that list would be really exhaustive. In fact, there's We'd even be here till tomorrow. <laughs> We'd be able to tomorrow. There's there's actually a whole curriculum piece that is based on that. That has, I think, 91 different courses that you can actually apply in an educational platform using schools. And it's called a You Can Do the Cube campaign that is is, is growing uh, in, in, in institutions, educational institutions around the world. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, you can teach all sorts of things from Fibonacci sequence to, to all, you know, there's a lot of real world applications that you could use with the cube as the uh, as as the vessel, um, and and so that that is that is actually uh, it's really really neat part of what the whole program is about. But you mentioned it right at the beginning, problem solving. That's probably your number one feature. Um, you know, you have this seemingly impossible task that has you know it's 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 so attainable, but it's so challenging. And when you apply um, a certain set of, of solutions, step by step, you can solve the queue. And so it's, it's, it's really about applying those, those solutions and breaking that big problem down into little parts and then applying the solve along the way and then getting the end result yes. when you're finished. Um, I'd love for our listeners to join us on Facebook, if you can. Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3. You'll be able to see uh, Dean and, and hear him there. He's, he's holding, actually, a Rubik's Cube. Can you give our listeners some sort of tips and strategies? Um, do you have to have a really good memory uh, when it comes to playing with the Rubik's Cube just to memorize, you know, uh, um, the, the, the the steps for uh, putting the, 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 the tiles in, in the correct place? Miles is correct. Uh, and a memory, yes. I mean, there are there are different sequences and different steps that that you can that you apply to solving a cube. Uh, and of course, the more experienced cubers and the speed cubers, if you haven't seen the Netflix uh, uh, program, go watch it. It's it's fantastic. Um, but essentially, it's applying those different steps, understanding where the cubes are located uh, on, on the whole, on, on the cube as a whole, and then knowing what step to take next. Yeah. So, so, so it does, it, it, there's visual spatial elements to it. Um, but having a memory for where you are in the step-by-step -step process and what needs to be applied to, to, to get to the next, uh, to, to get to the next stage is, 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 well, it's critical to solving the Rubik's Cube. Dean Zambelikos, co-founder of K-Global on The 123 Show. On Wednesday's Morning Brew, Phil had a very special guest on the program, the legendary pop music manager, producer, and filmmaker, Simon Napier-Bell, where he tells us all about his brand new documentary, George Michael, Portrait of an Artist. 
Simon had a very close working relationship with George, as from 1983 to 1986, he was the manager of pop duo Wham. He also told Phil more about the process and also how the documentary came to place. Well, actually, no, it's not. It's not about Wham, it's about George. No, about George, yes. It's about his whole life. Um, yes, of course, I knew George really well from those three years. But what I wanted to do was tell the story of his life in a way it hadn't been told. Yeah. Uh, which is not in any way sensational, but it has to be true. It has to have the ups and the downs. Uh, but I already made put the ups and the downs, especially the downs in, where they related to his music, so that you, you followed his life as an artist. Yeah. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a sort of tabloid type of thing. And, um, and it's got incredible reviews. I mean, the fans absolutely love it. Well, this is interesting because, you know, as a manager, you will have dealt with bands in the past where maybe somebody wanted to go solo and the jury's often been out on that one. But in George's case, it was, it was a monumentally good musical move, I think. It was an interesting thing because in a way he didn't go solo. He, he was solo. Yeah, like, yeah. He, he drove Wham. But of course, the interesting thing about Wham was the imagery of Wham came from Andrew, yeah. George. You know, he was the, the young lad about town, you know, the, the, the heterosexual guy out looking for the girls. And George just made a copycat of him, you know, for the, for the sake of making a great image. Yeah. Um, so when George left, I mean, the, the idea was, in my mind was that George would stop Wham and become his real self. Okay. But of course he did. He, but of course he didn't. He went on to make faith and just continued to be exactly the image he created in Wham, which was a false image, which is why at the end of faith, he found himself very unhappy with the business. So this was like a natural progression. He actually grew. It was going to happen. It was just a case of when, maybe. Yep, and c career-wise, that was it. I mean, it was always going to happen. Even when he started managing Wham, uh, he said straight off, you know, it's only two or three years and I'm going solo. Mm. If people read your book, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, which is all about Wham going to perform in Beijing, and I've put a link on our Morning Brew page to the audio bit version of it, we did. You learn a lot about George f from that book, and he just seemed to be such a sensible, uh, cautious, very sensitive bloke. There wasn't much for the tabloid boys at that stage to get going about, was there? He was, of course. He did appear very sensible. There was a very interesting thing happened. When I was managing him, he said to me one day, I've never done anything I regret. Yeah. And I thought, oh, what a buttoned up, careful, <laughs> over, how are you going to find out about that? Because I've never done anything I regret, but that's because regret isn't a word in my vocabulary. <laughs> exactly. But as his life went on, I realized I'd understood it wrong and the very opposite. Yeah. George, what he meant was anything he does, good or bad, he'll turn to his own advantage. And that's what he did all his life. How would you have described his personality at the time? I mean, Simon and I have done loads of things together on the radio, etc., over the years. You've never, you've never sort of waxed lyrical and gone all sort of silly about George. You've had the utmost respect for the guy, and I think you once said to me it was a good working relationship. Well, it is that. And, you know, being a manager isn't a friendship. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not friendly. Sure. But um, when you, you, you'll find when you stop managing people, it's very interesting. Several artists I've, I've, I've known for two or three years, I've probably had dinner with them 200, 300 times a year. Incredible. Yeah. Never stop talking. But the day you stop managing them, if you go and have dinner with them, you find it's not interesting because you've always been talking about their career. Yeah. And now you're talking about their views on politics and stuff, which you've never heard before. And suddenly they're not... They're not the close friend they were. They're clients, but you can be very friendly, a bit like your doctor. So even as a, even as a manager, you have to, as an, to an extent, um, live the myth, or believe in the myth a little of them. 
Well, they have to believe in it. I mean, if, if you don't believe in what they believe in, you're not going to be the manager. I'm going to be the manager. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Tell me, you said you're doing the documentary differently, Simon. What ground have you broken here? Well, it, it's not hugely different, but I mean, I was brought up in the film industry watching arty films. My father was a documentary film director, so I have in the back of my mind that you know, a documentary shouldn't be made the American way with a commentary and a man shouting loudly, you know, and, and um, a, a flashy lettering all over the screen. I believe in a, taking somebody through a story a little more carefully and interestingly. And so I divided his life into 12 chapters. Okay. Um, and by doing that, it meant if I had a chapter for wham and then a chapter for faith and a chapter for each bit, you didn't have to put every little detail of what happened in. The, each chapter had to give an essence of what was happening in his life. Mm -hmm. So you could make the film shorter, but actually not take it out the essence of anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about how you approach the documentary. Anything you want to share with us, style, content, anything at all. Well, first I made these 12 chapters, and then to give it some little, little bit of artistry, uh, each chapter has a famous a, a quote by a famous person. Like, there's a quote by Oscar Wilde, you know, um, the worst thing you can do is not achieve your goals. And, oh, I can't be what it is now, and even worse is to achieve them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, still Connolly and Vladimir Nabokov. I found these great quotes which summed up each of these periods. And then I got people who really knew George. Often that's not your family, it's not your brothers and sisters. Hmm. Uh, but the people who know you are the people who, who work with you every day. Yeah. I saw the guy who, who cleans your studio probably knows you better than some of your, some of your family. <laughs> okay. And uh, so I went to the people, like his producer, his tour manager, his pianist, um, and, you know, lots of celebrities. We've got Stevie Wonder, uh, Stephen Fry, uh, Rufus right. Wainwright, uh, all people who who knew him in one way or another very, very well. I want to talk about your book, Simon. You just never stop writing books. Um, the titles are always fascinating. I mentioned at the beginning the Wan Beijing story. I'm coming to take you to lunch. We've got Tarara Bumdier, and we've got whatever you're doing right now. How important is getting that title spot on for you? Uh, well, I didn't with Tarara Bumdier because it didn't really sell as it should have done because it's the history of the music business over 300 years. Musos will love it. They did. The reviews were fantastic, but we didn't sell, as you should have done, and it's being republished this year, at the same time as my new book, yeah. uh, and it's been called The Business. And that's, that's what it should have been called. I was too arty-party with that. I should have just called it The Business. It would have done better. It will do better now. Legendary pop music manager, producer, and filmmaker, Simon Napier-Bell, on The Morning Brew. Before we end today's Week on 3... I'll leave you with Steve James, who will take us back to that day in history. This time, it's the Rolling Stones. Take care and I'll see you next week. Same time here on The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. This Look. is the Steve James Monday Afternoon Drive. Here she comes. On Radio 3. Comedy is not a stable career. The factories may be roaring with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee. But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Oh, a lawyer in a courtroom in the middle of an alimony plea has to stop and help him pour when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Tea break this afternoon. Uh, this week, back in 1962, the Rolling Stones stepped on stage for the very first time. Actually, it was July the 12th, 1962. Can you believe it's been 60 years? 
without looking at Keith Richards, I mean.